We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Ownership change eve. That's today. We're on the eve of a change in ownership. Hang the stockings, get to bed early, kids. Tomorrow's a big day. Uh, More on that coming up in a few minutes. Andy Poland will join me on the show today. Uh, We will talk past, present, and future. Andy coming up in the next segment. The show today presented by the Circa Million and the Circa Survivor Pools at the Circa Hotel and Casino and Sportsbook out in Las Vegas. The Circa Million guarantees $1 million to the winner and another $5 million in guaranteed prizes. The Circa Million is pick five teams each week in the NFL against the spread, and at the end of the season, the person with the best record uh, takes home a million bucks. But again, during the course of the season, lots of other in-season prize opportunities totaling another $5 million in guaranteed prizes. The entry is 1000 bucks per entry, maximum of five entries per person. You have to sign up in Vegas, but you don't have to make your picks from Vegas. The Circus Survivor Pool is just like any other Survivor Pool. You pick one team straight up every week to win, no spread. Uh, if the team loses or ties, you're out. If that team wins, then you pick a different team the following week. You can only pick each team once per season. The Circus Survivor Pool is going to pay $8 million guaranteed to the winner or winners of the contest. Uh, Circa Million, Circus Survivor at the Circus Sportsbook Casino and Hotel in Vegas. If you're planning on being there, uh, enter those two contests. Um, I might be there uh, next month. Uh, I am... Somebody called me out on radio for this this morning. Somebody called me out and just said, hey, I was just curious. Do you have your trip to Wyoming planned this summer? You promised Cooley if he came on the show last year during football season that the only thing you had to do was take a trip out to Wyoming this coming summer. Um, I am planning that trip. I am. Cooley and I were talking about it earlier this week. And I'm just trying to finalize a couple of days in August to fly out to Wyoming and hang out with him for a little bit. So if I do that, I may 
take a day in Vegas. Why not? Go to the Circa, incredible sports book, the biggest and the best in Vegas, and enter the Circa Million and the Circa Survivor Pool. All right, um, before we get to Andy uh, and a lot on the big day tomorrow, I wanted to read this tweet from Jason to start the show. He wrote, you don't seem like you're a big fan of Sam Howell, but I'm wondering if you think he deserves the chance he's getting. If you think he deserves it, don't make up your mind until you've seen him play. Uh, So, Jason, I'm reading your tweet because of the first part, not the second part. The second part where you wrote, if you think if you think he deserves it, don't make up your mind until you've seen him play. If you've been listening closely, I haven't made up my mind yet, and I won't until I see him play a lot. You know, not one game at the end of a season in a meaningless environment, not a few games. Uh, look, many people made up their minds on Geno Smith after several years, and then look at him last year, thirty-one years old or whatever he is. Doesn't happen often. But the position of quarterback is so dependent on so many things unless you're just elite. You know, if you're just one of those elite guys, it doesn't matter as much. But for everybody else, it's system, it's coaching, it's supporting cast, it's patience on behalf of the franchise. And before any of that, uh, before any of that, it's just the opportunity. And that's why the first part of your email, Jason, is worth considering a little bit. And I am going to consider it a little bit. Um, When you wrote, you don't seem like you're a big fan of Sam Howell, but I'm wondering if you think he deserves the chance he's getting. First of all, it's not that I'm not a fan or a fan of Sam Howell. I'm not either at this point. I'm intrigued. I'm hopeful. But he hasn't done anything to make me a fan or turn me off from being a fan. Uh, There's nothing really there to sink teeth into at this point. I know some of you really loved him at the end of uh, last season or loved him at at Carolina. I thought he was pretty good at North Carolina, perhaps more of a guy who benefited from the system he was in. Um, He was not my favorite quarterback coming out in the 22 draft. I never considered him to be worthy of a super high draft choice. I thought Pickett was really that guy. And I actually kind of liked Malik Willis, uh, so don't take my word for this stuff. Uh, although it's early on Malik Willis as well. Apparently he had a, he had a very good spring in Tennessee. Um, I didn't think he'd fall to the fifth round, but I'm just not worked up one way or the other about Sam Howell at this point. He's a mystery. He's got some arm talent. He's got some mobility. Um, but so did Joe Webb. So did Mike Kafka. So did Bryce Petty. So did Brett Hundley. So did Josh Dobbs. So did Will Greer. And a long list of guys taken later in the draft over the last, you know, 10 to 12 years, 15 years. Uh, It's a long list. Now, other than Greer, you know, the West Virginia quarterback, few others had, I mean, Brett Hundley, Bryce Petty had a bit of a brand playing for, you know, those Baylor teams. Brett Hundley. Um, I always always liked uh, Hundley, actually. I thought he was going to be a good NFL quarterback, and I think he's still in the league as a backup. And he started some games, I remember, in Green Bay. But um, Greer, you know, was at one point thought to be kind of a first-round caliber guy. But, 
you know, few of a uh, few others have had the brand recognition, I guess you could call it, that Sam Howell uh, had going into that draft because of the expectations the year before were so high for him. I mean, they weren't, um, you know, when you think about brand recognition for quarterbacks that get taken late in drafts, like Heisman Trophy winners like Troy Smith, you know, he got picked in the fifth round by Baltimore out of Ohio State, you know, after winning the Heisman Trophy. More people knew Troy Smith than Sam Howell, but Sam Howell was a known, you know. But for me, look, Sam Howell hasn't earned a decision on whether or not to be a fan. That's for me. But you asked me, Jason, if I think he deserves the chance he's getting. That's an interesting question to me. My answer is no. No, I don't think he deserves the chance he's getting. But deserving the chance and getting it are two different things altogether. For me to think after one NFL start that he had earned the chance to be labeled quarterback one heading into his second year, I'd have to forget that they didn't even want to play him in the Dallas game or didn't want to start him in the Dallas game. They didn't think that he had earned the chance before the Dallas game. But Taylor Heineke, you know, didn't want to risk a free agent deal, didn't want to risk injury, um, and talked them into playing Howell against the Cowboys. What he did in his one NFL regular season game against Dallas, okay, it was not bad, but it was a meaningless game against Dallas. Um, And it wasn't enough, in my opinion, to earn the starting job designation the following season. So, no, he didn't earn it. I don't think he earned it. If all season long we were hearing what uh, you know we conveniently heard when the season ended about him, that he looks really good, the coaches can't wait to give him an opportunity in a real game, and then maybe prior to the Dallas game we heard, you know, first of all, it was a no-brainer for them to start him. Rivera, you know, immediately when they were eliminated from postseason said Sam Howell's going to start the season finale. He's come a long way since training camp. There's something there. You know, this game is a good chance to see what we've seen in practice sort of come to life in a real game. If I had heard that, maybe I'd feel differently about whether or not he's earned the chance. But I can't erase their indecisiveness over playing him. I can't erase their obvious concern over his readiness to start a meaningless game at the end of the year, which, by the way, was reported by Logan Paulson that week before he got name starter. No, you're not going to convince me that he's earned the right to be the number one guy at this point. But that's different, much different from getting the chance to be the number one guy. That's different than earning it. They didn't have many options. There wasn't a QB on the roster last year that you could sell as a viable returning starter. They didn't have the ability to chase a big name in free agency or via a trade because of the ownership situation being in flux. So him getting that chance, you know, I think makes some sense given their situation. I don't think they would – let me just make this point. I don't think they would just give him that – you know, QB one label and give him the opportunity that they're going to give him if they actually thought he sucked. 
you know, despite their situation and the fact that they didn't have many other options, I don't think that if they thought he really couldn't do it or there was no chance he could do it, that they would have, you know, given that situation uh, or that designation to him. Um, you know, I imagine that they've had some conversations about going 8-8-1 eight, eight, and one with Taylor Heineke, and they can see a situation where, you know, Sam Howell, if he can come along uh, far enough, quickly enough, that a bigger-armed version of Taylor Heineke with a good supporting cast could keep them competitive again in 2023. I'm sure they've made the case to themselves that they've got a bigger-armed version of Taylor Heineke, or at least they hope they do. They obviously have hoped to sell with Sam Howell because his name is familiar, and we haven't seen him do anything wrong yet. He's a source of hope for the position and the team. Uh, But they didn't have anybody else they could present in that way. You know, the opportunity for Hal, as we've discussed, is very rare. We talked about this a few weeks back. You know, Ben Standig uh, elaborated uh, on it in his story. From 2010 to 2021, 74 quarterbacks were drafted on day three, like Hal was. Only three of the 74 have become starters or near starters. Kirk Cousins, Dak Prescott, and Tyrod Taylor, who's not a starter but has started games. The three of them are the only day three QBs during that period of 12 seasons to start more than 30 games in their career. You know, that's the equivalent, essentially, of two seasons. The other 71 out of the 74 are essentially gone or backups in the league at this point. Now, what's interesting is to consider is the 70 are the 71 out of 74 essentially not, you know, uh, uh, did, did they not turn into legitimate NFL quarterbacks because they weren't good enough? Or is it because day three quarterbacks don't get the chances to prove that they can do it? You know, that. Is, that's always been part of the conversation, right? I mean, we know that first-round guys, second-round guys, day-one guys for sure, always get the benefit of the doubt. They're always going to get more chances because of what was invested. So do we see more day-one guys making it, you know, by a massive, you know, difference in, in, in percentage hit, you know, First-round guys make up most of the really good quarterbacks in the league and have for a long period of time. Is that because they got all those chances and the day three quarterbacks didn't? I don't know the answer for sure. But I suspect that both things are true, that the opportunity that Sam Hall is getting is rare because the higher drafted guys get the first chance and get more chances and they get the benefit of the doubt, etc. But it's also probably true that day three guys got picked on day three for a reason, that they just weren't as good. Cousins, Prescott, and Taylor, you know, showed somebody something along the way that afforded them the opportunity to play. Now, injuries you know, they do play a role in the opportunities that some of these quarterbacks get. And with Cousins, that's true. With Prescott, that's true. Um, But they did something that led key decision-makers to keep them on the roster 
so that they had that chance when those injuries happened. You know, Ben, um, Ben as part of his writing on this a few weeks back, pointed out that Hal, who made his only start in Week 18 last year, as we know, is the only QB in recent memory with such a scant resume who, absent an injury, was named a Week 1 starter in his second season. Only Trevor Simeon got that chance with the 2016 Denver Broncos. So the opportunity for these guys is rare, and it could be a part of the reason that you don't, you don't see more of them in the league. And maybe someday that'll change. Who knows? But even more rare is that Sam is just the second guy to get this chance as a week one starter with just one previous start in his career. So it's going to be, you know, a bit of a litmus test um, to a certain degree. Washington, you know, I was going to say Washington is gambling. They're they're really not gambling on this because they don't have other obvious options or solutions, which is why this rare chance exists for Sam Howell because they don't really have any other options. Uh, We'll see if he can make the most of it and buck the odds. Um, But to answer Jason's question, no, I don't think he's earned it. I don't know why anybody would think he's earned it. They didn't want to play him, or they didn't want to start him in the season finale. They were concerned. He hadn't earned anything in their minds. They're selling it like he's earned it now because it's convenient. It doesn't mean, by the way, that when he gets the opportunity to get more reps in practice, to play with the starters, to play more snaps in preseason, and then to get the opportunities in regular season games, it doesn't mean that he won't grow into it. And they won't say at some point behind closed doors, because they'll act like they knew it all along, wow, he's really come along. So this could be the final day in full that Dan Snyder owns the team. More likely than not, we're on the eve of his final day uh, owning the team. Um, Vote still looks good, I think, for tomorrow, and then we'll see how quickly the deal closes uh, after the purchase. As I've mentioned for many months now, you know, the vote doesn't finalize it. The vote just ratifies Josh Harris uh, as acceptable to own the team, uh, then they've got to sign the final documents and wire the money. Um, But that, I guess, theoretically could happen tomorrow after the vote, uh, but it's more likely to happen on Friday. Uh, By the way, the team is holding an event on Friday at the stadium at FedEx Field. Uh, They're calling it Training Camp Pep Rally. Um, but there is some discussion that Josh Harris will make an appearance at FedEx Field. Uh, tomorrow night, let me just remind everybody to come out and see me and everybody from the radio station at the bullpen next to Nats Park. Uh, that is for our Burgundy and Sold Party. Live music, beer, food trucks. I'll be there at 4.30 when the doors open. Would love for as many of you who are listening to come out and please come up and say hello. Uh, There will be a lot of familiar faces and there will be a lot of faces 
of people that I've talked to or interacted with that I've never met. So this is a chance for that to happen. If it's convenient for you, come on down to the bullpen tomorrow, Thursday tomorrow, uh, July 20th. Doors open at 430 for our Burgundy and Sold party. The other guys from the station will be there. I think Doc's going to be doing um, the evening show or the uh, he'll, I think he's doing the show after uh, the Craig Hoffman show. So I think Doc will be down there. There will be some players down there. Uh, the guys from 106.7, the fan, will be down there. It would be great uh, to see uh, you down there uh, if you can make it. Um, so I had Matt Paris from the Washington Times on radio this morning. He tracked down John Kent Cook for a story that he wrote. John Ken Cook, the son of Jack Ken Cook. Um, John Ken Cook, you know, was not the seller of the team in 1999. It was actually the trustees of the Jack Ken Cook Foundation. John Ken Cook was a bidder on the team. Um, but John Ken Cook had some really good quotes in the story, in the Matt Paris story, including, by the way, he thinks the team should change the name Commanders. And he said he would have never relinquished the Redskins name. Funny because Len Shapiro was on the podcast with me on Monday and Len said that in Cook, as in Jack Kent Cook's dying days, that he seriously considered changing the name. Um, it was actually some good stuff from Matt Paris uh, this morning on radio. I, I started reading um, from various accounts of the sale 24 years ago. I started uh, doing that and looking into that recently, but last night uh, I got uh, buried into about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of reading various stories on the sale because there are some similarities with this sale, but there were things that I did not know. It's not, maybe, maybe I knew them, but I had just forgotten them. John Kent Cook, according to the New York Times, got his offer all the way up to $680 million. Now, that was $120 million short of Dan's offer. Matt told me today that John was upset because he wasn't given a chance to get back into it after he offered six eighty million when Dan uh, offered $800 million. And he thought, as the son of the former owner, he should have, be- should have been given another opportunity to raise more money and make another offer. But I didn't remember John Ken Cook. Actually, Matt told me that his offer, his last offer, was $720 million. But the New York Times reported that it was $680 million. Um, by the way, between the time that the owners voted Snyder in, 31 to nothing was the vote. More on that in a second. It took a month before they closed the deal with the trustees from the Jack Kent Cook Foundation. That's different than what you have now because it's just Dan and Tanya and his sister. You had, um, you know, a, a more uh, a more complex situation in the sale of it. It took a month after the voters uh, ratified Snyder for Snyder to actually take over the team. Uh, that's not going to happen uh, in this sale. Um, so uh, Snyder got a thirty-one to nothing vote from from the owners um, when they ratified him as the new owner. And I was like, hmm, who didn't vote? Uh, nobody didn't vote. 
everybody voted because in 1999, there were 31 NFL teams. There were 30 the year before, but 1999 was the first year the Cleveland Browns were back in Cleveland as an expansion team. So there were 31 votes from 31 teams and 31 yeses for Dan Snyder. By the way, Charlie Casserly represented the Redskins in that vote on behalf of the trustees of the Jack Kent Cook Foundation, and he voted yes. Uh, By the way, that was um, the first of what would become three seasons of 31 teams in the NFL. Uh, The 32nd team, the Houston Texans, arrived in 2002, and that was the first year of what is still the current, you know, division format of four divisions per conference. Uh, they had, you know, a nice round number of 32, and so they went with, you know, eight four-team divisions. Before that, you had three divisions in each conference, and the AFC Central had six teams because Cleveland played in that division when the expansion team went back to Cleveland. Um Here were some quotes I found from that day. This was Snyder. Buying the Redskins is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. I'm a a fan, a huge fan. It's that simple. I'm not focused on the money. I'm focused on the opportunity and the dream. Hundreds of fans have written to me with their support and suggestions. Your most pressing issue is no different than mine. You want to win. We want to win. And we're going to deliver that. Closed quote. Um, there was more, by the way, uh, from Snyder, which I'll get to here shortly. This was Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, who, by the way, was a Redskins fan, you know, a Redskins season ticket holder, like Goodell was. Tagliabue lived in Bethesda. He was the NFL commissioner. And he said about Snyder, quote, he's the perfect person to pick up the Cook legacy and run with it. Dan Snyder has proved his mettle in the business world at a young age, and he's a passionate NFL fan and a Redskins fan, closed quote. Uh, There were quotes from two different owners, both of whom, by the way, served on the NFL Finance Committee at the time. Tom Benson, the owner of the Saints, um, did not like Howard Milstein's offer because he said it had too much debt in it. Howard Milstein was, you know, separated from Snyder. Snyder was essentially, you know, told, go get new investors because the league wasn't going to approve Howard Milstein as the owner because they thought, you know, Len Shapiro told us the other day, he was overly litigious. But anyway, Tom Benson said, financially, he's got it structured very strong. He's got good partners and they put up a lot of upfront money. If there's a problem with revenues, they've said they're, they've said they're prepared to step in if they have to. He impresses me as a team player. He knows our rules and regulations. Once he grasped what we wanted, he went out and got it done. He's going to be a good partner for us. Closed quote. Robert Kraft was the finance committee chairman at the time as the owner of the New England Patriots, before the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. He described Dan Snyder as, quote, passionate about the game. You don't have to worry about the new steward of the franchise. Uh, He's got, uh, the only thing on his mind is winning. 
a unanimous vote doesn't happen very often in this league. I have a bias for owners who are passionate and will put winning on the field above everything else. Closed quote. I wonder what the vote will be tomorrow. I would assume that it's going to be 32 to nothing. And I would assume that Dan and Tanya have to vote. Maybe they won't vote, but they should vote. They they want it to be three quarters plus so that they can collect four and a half to $5 billion net um, on this deal. Uh, the owners 24 years ago, they were all in on Dan Snyder. But here was something that was interesting. John Kent Cook didn't say anything specifically about Snyder, refused all interviews to talk about the new owner, but did put out a statement. I think, by the way, he had some reservations about Snyder from the jump. Uh, He was disappointed he didn't get the team and he didn't keep it in the family, but I think he had reservations about Snyder, which is why he declined to comment specifically about Snyder. But he issued this statement, quote, This has been a long goodbye. As disappointing as it has been, it's also been very gratifying to hear how much my family has meant to the National Football League and Redskins fans. Dad would have been as overwhelmed as I am. Thank you to all. Hail to the great Redskins fans! Exclamation point. Um, John Ken Cook, by the way, according to the Washington Post, basically got 10% of the sale. That's what his dad left him. He, he inherited 10% of the sale price. And they, um, they, they guessed at that time, they estimated at that time, that minus a lot of the expenses that he had incurred um, owning the team and then trying to buy the team, that he was going to net roughly $60 million off the transaction. Not bad. Um, but, you know, as Len uh, pointed out to us the other day, and, and I think many of you knew this, the proceeds from the sale went to set up a charitable trust to provide scholarships to um, impoverished uh, and needy uh, uh, gra- students and, and, and graduate students. Um, by the way, Snyder at the time said Casserly and Norv are safe. Of course, Casserly wasn't safe. And he apparently wrote to team employees indicating that they'll all keep their jobs and thank them for enduring an anxious and unsettling time. By the way, the other crazy part of this deal, this was in the New York Times also, the $800 million price, only $100 million went up in cash. So there was a lot of debt in the deal. Now, I remember reading that it was $200 million in cash, $600 million in debt. But the New York Times reported that Snyder, Mort Zuckerman, and Fred Drasner, who were his other investors, only had to put up $100 million in, in cash. The rest was debt. I mean, think about that, by the way. $100 million in. He obviously you know, bought out Zuckerman and Drasner at higher valuations, brought in new investors, um, still owned you know, 60% plus of the team, but a hundred million in, and I don't know how much of that was Dan's, but just call it a hundred million, and he's going to get four and a half to five billion net out of this sale twenty four twenty four years later. That's a forty to fifty x return. Not bad, not bad. Um, tomorrow begins more likely than not uh, the Josh Harris era. 
and uh, it's going to be a rebuild job. That's for sure. Um, they've got to build a customer base. They've got to improve their facilities and build new ones. They've got a new name and, and a brand that's been a disaster. Um, and they've got a team that, you know, has continued to finish in last place a lot of the time. Uh, the team roster is better than it's been in a while. Um, but uh, it's going to be quite the reconstruction of this franchise. And I think they'll get all of the time they need. They're going to get a lot of, of honeymoon uh, time. Uh, this is going to be a long grace period for Harris and his group of investors. All right, let's get to Andy Poland next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, as promised, jumping on with me right now is my good friend Andy Polin at AndyPolin1 on Twitter. Uh, Andy hosts uh, a show on ESPN 630 here in D.C. And, of course, Andy and I worked together for many, many years at 980, where Andy launched 980 all the way back in May of 1992, um, simultaneous with the announcement that they would start, uh, you know, carrying the team's games. But Dan Snyder was not the owner then. It would take another seven years for him to become the owner of the team. So here we are on maybe the last full day of Dan Snyder owning the team. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, it's about time, I guess, is what uh, the best way to look at this. And, uh, you know, I've been listening to you uh, for the last few weeks about, you know, when did you first know uh, that this wasn't going to work? Uh, what were the early signs? And, um, you know, I was thinking about this, how early it occurred to me, hmm, maybe there's a problem here. And when he first took over the team, he did do interviews from time to time. Uh, he was, he, in fact, he did one uh, during his first couple of seasons with Armin Katayan on Real Sports, something you know he would never do today. Um, but he was asked, taking over in May, about the preseason, which was coming up in a, in a, in a couple of months. And he said something like, we're going to try to win every game. And I thought, hmm, you know, even the casual football fan knows you don't try to win exhibition games. Yeah. So, so then there's that. 
And then um, they had a tackle by the name of Mo Elowinibi, yeah. who uh, had actually replaced Jim Lachey when Lachey got hurt in 92. So by 1999, he's still with the team. Wasn't very good, but, you know, had a journeyman NFL career. Uh, also was known for his collection of yellow laundry. So he got a lot of holding penalties, but still with the team. In the first exhibition game, they played Pittsburgh, and there was a touchdown pass that was thrown by the Redskins and was called back because of a Mo Elowinibi holding penalty. And two days after the game, Elowinibi got cut. And I thought, hmm, that's odd, because you don't have to cut players early in training camp. And you need bodies. And here's a guy who'd been with the team for six or seven years. You may cut him eventually. But that became sort of like, hmm, maybe this guy is a little bit more involved than he should be. Maybe he doesn't know as much about football as we think he does. And so those were some real early signs for me. Yes, so those were early signs. But, you know, I... The question that I asked the other day, because, look, you and I... um, this was a big part of our lives uh, before you got into broadcasting, long before I got into broadcasting. And I, I don't I don't want to revisionist history it for me. Like th- it was very up and down. Like I know there were moments where we were like, Ugh. but I'm talking about the moment in which you thought it'll never happen. Like, there's no chance as long as he owns the team. You know, my for the last six, seven years, I have basically, Tommy and I have done this thing where we've suspended reality. The reality being right. to have football conversations. The reality being they'll never win as long as Dan Snyder owns the team. And I always have added the caveat, well, like, if they got really lucky and drafted Peyton Manning, but, but even if they did that, Snyder would have ruined the relationship with the coach. Something would have happened. But when was it that you had that moment where you realized he's so bad, he's so toxic, he's so incompetent, there's no chance that this organization will ever have like a legitimate chance to win and win big? Because I don't think it was the early days. Uh, I'm glad you asked that. I, I can almost pinpoint the date. It was February of 2008. And I was driving to a Maryland basketball game with my son. And I heard that Jim Zorn had been named head coach of the team. (laughs) And there was going to be a news conference the following day. Now, this is before we knew really anything about Zorn. However, however, the name Jim Fossil had been out there for a while. Gibbs resigned, what, first, second week in January after they lost the playoff game to Seattle? Okay, so... Uh, the name Fossil surfaced within days of that. And we started to hear things like, well, Fossil wants to hire this guy who's been a longtime quarterbacks coach in Seattle named Jim Zorn. Okay, all right, fine. Then they go out and they hired Zorn. They hired Zorn before they hired the head coach. And then you start to hear other things like, you remember that was the last year that Mike Holmgren had coached Seattle. He was, it was the retirement year. He's going right. into it. And Jim Mora Jr. was going to replace him. And as we later found out, Jim Mora Jr. said to Zorn, Hey, uh, Jim, uh, you can hang here for another year, but as soon as I become head coach, you're not even going to become quarterback coach here under me. So, you know, you get out while the getting's good. So he goes there. And so now we're waiting for Spagnola 
as the Giants are in the Super Bowl. And once the Giants are out, you assume that Spagnola is going to become the head coach, Jim Spagnola. Well, Spagnola turned them down after he realized what a shit show it was after, you know, sitting with Danny and Benny at Dan's house while they went through the Notre Dame playbook of how to hire a coach. (laughs) And then uh, they go out and they hire uh, Jim Zorn. So I think at that moment I said, oh, my God, this is a disaster. Uh, and, and not even knowing what a disaster Jim Zorn was as a coach, what an incompetent person he was for that job. So if you're asking me what the moment was, it was exactly that moment. I'm driving to a Maryland basketball game with my son in late February. You know, it's funny, but that um, you and I were doing the Monday morning quarterback show together for those years. And I remember Zorn's 6-2 and two start, and you and I were doing that show, and I think Rigo was doing it with us that year. Mm-hmm. Maybe he came in for part of it. I forget how that worked back then. Yeah, he did it. Yep, he did but, it with us But that just, year. To, just to prove that I wasn't out and I still had belief, I remember on that show insisting – that this was a pretty good football team at 6-2, and two, and we had something to be excited about, and you were not excited about it. You were, And Rigo was not. And Rigo wasn't was, either. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was with him. And, and there were, you remember, in a couple of those games, he rolled the dice and, Fourth and down came runs. up in his favor. Yeah. 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 And, and, and again, this was a team that had been built by Joe Gibbs to run the football. You had Clinton Portis with a lot of tread left on the tire. And the defense was good enough so that they were winning close games with a couple of close calls. Also, the narrative picked up that, hey, Zorn must be a really good play caller. And then, of course, he, 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 uh, he puffed out his chest and said, yes, you know, it just sort of comes naturally to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we would later boot him out of town with the swinging gate. Yeah. I mean, come on. I know. I, but, um, yeah, I, uh, but I see at that point for me, and I, I've already discussed this with Tommy on the podcast, but for me, it was, I'll ne- first of all, remember the year Tommy and I did the Zorn show and I asked Zorn mm-hmm. if he felt like he needed to win in week two against the Rams, uh, coming right. off a win, by the way, and I've never gotten a, a more angry stare and he tried to rip into me when we went off the air, and I just said, look, man, you just got to town. You've been here for a year and a half. Trust me, nobody in my audience right now is thinking that that wasn't a fair question. Um, and you know, and then it was a few weeks later that he was you know, serving up words like comply. Um, <laughs> but but, I, but I, I, I talked about being – I remember I, I did the pregame show, and then I stayed at the stadium for the Chiefs game – in October of that year, and it was the first time I can ever remember just an absolute sparse crowd, A, B, an absolute unenthusiastic crowd, and in a one-score game, the place emptied in the second half on a beautiful fall day when they were 2-3. and And I remember coming in the next day with Tommy and just saying, apathy has set in. This is the beginning of the end. Um, If Snyder doesn't have some you know, epiphany and fire Vinny and, and, but by the way, he did and he hired Bruce. And then, you know, it was the 2013 was kind of the next rock bottom. But anyway, that's interesting. The, you know, your point there is a good one in that it was the first time that Washington wasn't wooing people with money. 
Dan mm-hmm. was able to, you know, convince anybody to come with money, overpaying every, you know, free agent by 30%, um, you know, uh, giving coaches all the money in the world. But Steve Spagnolo didn't want to have anything to do with this organization. Other coaches didn't want to have anything to do with Snyder. Fossil, and then, you know, and that started the run. That, look, he did attract Shanahan. He did yep. with a lot of money. Um, Rivera didn't have many choices when they got to Gruden, you know, Gruden was, uh, you know, the first ever kind of hot coordinator they hired because Zorn wasn't a hot coordinator and Spurrier was a college coach, you know, a known college yeah. coach, but yeah. Yeah. The thing, the thing though, about, about the hiring of Shanahan, you got to realize that that's a double edged thing. We bring in Bruce too. Right. And, and Bruce was not the Bruce that we knew going out the door. Coming in the door, he had a, a decent reputation, right. plus the legacy of his father. So, you know, while it was Spagnola being hired by Vinny, who he's probably looking across the table from and thinking, oh, God, I can't work with this guy. Now you have somebody with NFL chops, somebody who's got a name uh, coming in. And, and we were sold that it was a package deal, right? Weren't we told that that, that basically Shanahan had approved the hiring of Bruce Allen. Didn't, yes, didn't we yes, hear that coming yes, in? Yes, we were. Yeah. 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 So, so in, in that regard, it was like, it was more than money. It was like, okay, he's finally learned his lesson after 10 years of Vinny that this boob can't run his franchise, and now he's going to get professional people in to run it. We thought that. I thought that. I was excited about Mike. I was a fan of Mike from afar. And to your sure. point, we've said this many times before. It's not new. I mean, Bruce Allen coming in was considered to be a solid hire. Bruce had a very good reputation in the league as an administrator. There were people that questioned his football acumen and his football GMing um, ability. And, you know, but for us, it was. It's similar in in that Dan's gone and it doesn't matter who's coming in. It's not Dan. When Vinny, when he finally got around to firing Vinny, it was like, at least they've got you know somebody in here who's actually a professional NFL executive. Right, uh, right, yeah, yeah. 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 And, I, and also, I remember this: uh, Bruce Allen was trotted around Radio Row uh, at the Super Bowl. You know, just after he was, I always been on the job a few weeks or months, but. Yeah. Uh, it was after that that season, after that Zorn second season. We were in Miami, and yeah, I guess so. And 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 I remember asking him. I said, "Well, you know, uh, Dan Snyder uh, has been known to go with the scouting staff and the coaching staff to go look at players. Uh, do you expect that to happen?" And he looked at me like incredulous, like, "No, no, that's that's not going to happen." And well, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> he continued to do it, and he and. He and Bruce became drinking buddies, right? <laughs> yeah, and they fell in love with RG3 and Donovan yeah, McNabb yeah. a few months later. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, God, uh, nuts. Um, I think we may have talked about this before on the podcast, but no one will remember. Um, and I don't remember what you said, so I'm going to ask it again. In the early days of Dan Snyder, you knew him. I mean, I know you didn't know him well, but you knew him a little bit. And didn't you have him on the show a couple of times or not? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, actually, he became, well, Bennett Zier, who was the general manager yeah. of the station, uh, once he spots somebody famous, he usually, you know, sniffs up to him. And, and he made a couple of interviews actually happen. That we, we, did, we did have him in the studio once. 
And I did an interview with him at the Redskins store in Tyson's once with Larry Weissman. Zabe was on vacation at the time, and Zabe to this day claims they timed it so he wouldn't be there. But uh, we asked regular, you know, tough questions, including uh, the, the, the famous story about Pepper Rogers uh, being the choice to replace Norv Turner after he fired Turner at 7-6, and six, and he denied that. Uh, a couple of other things that had been reported at the time, which he denied, flat out denied. And uh, and I think that they were true. But, you know, that, that again was still the relative honeymoon phase of everything. So we weren't, you know, totally ripping him at every turn as we did in the later years. What do you remember, though, about him? Because, look, he became a recluse in terms of mm-hmm. media availability and his... You know, there was no doubt that he, this was not a comfortable thing. Uh, It got to a point where it was not a comfortable thing for him to do media anymore. Those things became few and far between, even, you know, uh, go back 10, 12 years ago. I mean, he did Doc there a couple of times. He did Cooley, I think, once or twice when Cooley came to work for the station. I think he did something with Chick Hernandez once. But last six, seven years, it's been reclusive. But he wasn't that way at the very beginning, was he? No, no. As I said, he did. You can probably find it, uh, the interview that he did with Armin Kittayan. And, yeah. and Kittayan, uh, one of the questions was, a lot of people consider you a prick. And I don't know what the answer was, but, the, you know, he was actually facing tough questions. And, uh, and, and I don't think he had any understanding about what, the job was all about or what, you know, entailed was entailed in being an owner and participating with the media. As I've I've told you a number of times, I believe I did the first radio interview with him, maybe one of the first broadcast interviews uh, where we had uh, reporter Rich Cook standing outside the room in Miami in 1999 when he was approved. And as soon as he stepped out, he put a cell phone in his hand and I did about a five or six minute interview with him. And one of the questions was about the name. And you remember at the time, you know, Jack Kent Cook or John Kent Cook was seen as, oh, God, old, old stuff. Get him out of here. You know, he he owned the team for two years. He didn't fire Norv. And, you know, nothing's got, getting better here. Uh, here's a young guy who's going to be aggressive. And it was assumed he's Jewish liberal. And and when there was, you know, at that time, the name was up again in the Supreme Court for uh, trademark protection and, and things like that. And, and I asked him, uh, will you change the name of the team? And he said, no. And then I brought up the possibility that they would lose the trademark protection because the name was racist. And I don't think he had any idea what I was talking about, but he said he wouldn't change the name. Um, and I don't really remember any of the other questions, whether they were really that pertinent, but that, that was that. And then, you know, you also remember this, he, he was very giddy about winning. So we're going to win right away. Yeah. And, and he also, I believe, said something about Norv Turner not necessarily making it through the season before the season began. I don't think he had any idea about what it meant to fire a coach during a season. And, uh, and he did, you know, he did keep his promise to Norv that he would bring him back for the following year uh, if he made the playoffs, which he did, and they won a playoff game. So he came back for what would be his last year, but he got fired then. Um, I, I don't know if this is, this is another thing that, that kind of floats around in the ether on all this. Rick Snyder uh, did an interview with Norv several years after he got fired. And Norv said that after that year where he made the playoffs, after his first year with Snyder, that he was going to resign 
And the only reason he didn't resign was that his son, Scott Turner, was going into his senior year of high school and was the starting quarterback and didn't want to move him. And so he stayed for another year. So just imagine if, if, if there was no Scott situation then, they make the playoffs, they win the division, right? Won the division 10 yeah. and 6, won a playoff game, and then Norv Turner, after finally making the playoffs in what would be his, what, sixth, seventh year, something like that? Yeah, it was seventh uh, resigns. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't have that? Wouldn't that have been a red flag? Oh there? my God! Wouldn't that have said something? Uh, 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 yeah. yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that story. There, there are a couple of stories this week that I've been told that I that I haven't heard. Two of which I'm going to mention to you here in a moment. But um, I, look, Mike, remember considered uh, uh, resigning and leaving after the Seattle playoff or before the Seattle playoff game and then after it because of what was going on with RG3 and the you know the uh, the the feeling that Snyder had you know basically sabotaged the relationship uh, with RG3 and the coaching staff so no that would have been amazing because Norv North had rough years, and then in 99, they make the trade for Brad Johnson. As you know, Charlie's told all of us that, that Dan tried to undo that trade the moment he uh, you know, took control of the team in this early summer of, of, 20, uh, of 1999, but couldn't. The league wouldn't let him do it. Brad Johnson has a big year. They go 10-6. and six. They win a playoff game, which, by the way, I hate giving Snyder credit. The two playoff wins he had during his ownership tenure, one of them would have never happened had he taken control of the team a little bit earlier because he didn't want Brad Johnson. He wanted Jeff George. And, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, it, that would have been amazing had Norv quit at the end of that year. Imagine right. the red flag that would have been. Norv finally gets to the playoffs, wins a game, has a team coming back that's going to be pretty good on paper, and he resigns and he says, yeah, because you know, he would have had to give reasons. He would have had to give right, reasons but, why he but, resigned. But again, that that was year one of year Dan one. Snyder. Yeah, so, yeah. So, uh, so my moment when I knew, okay, this is never going to work, was what year seven, yeah. eight, something well, yeah, like that. Two thousand eight, yeah. year nine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So think about that. Well, and, yeah. you know, the stories, and look, you were in media. I wasn't. But the stories out there about, you know, him completely uh, lambasting Norv in the Cowboy locker room, um, you know, mm-hmm. and embarrassing him in front of the entire team uh, after an early season loss, the vanilla ice cream, Mike Nolan First stuff. Game. No, what, no, 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 no. That what that was not the first. The first game was the Dan's first game as an owner. Actually, this is interesting um, because the game was on recently on NFL Network, and that was the Troy Aikman uh, Rocket Ishmael uh, up thirty-five fourteen. Uh, Cowboys come back to win 41-35 in overtime. That was Dan Snyder's very first game as an owner. That wasn't the game he ripped Norv. The game he ripped Norv was weak. I think they were four and two at the time. It was you know a month and a half later at Dallas when they lost, and he embarrassed Norv in the locker room. Um, Man, you know Snyder's first game as owner was quite the heartbreaker. You know it's one of the all time memorable uh, Skins Cowboys games. But that ninety nine that ninety nine season was a good season. That would have been 
I mean, it would have been interesting, but Norv had had it with him, clearly. Um, Norv knew, more than anybody, you know, the, the two people that knew that this guy was no good was Charlie and Norv. They were the ones that knew right. before anybody else. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and also, um, you know, the insider sort of access that I had here. In 2000, I did a television show with Irving Fryer and Mark Carrier. And uh, late in that season, that was after Norv was fired, I guess, uh, they, you know, you heard a lot of gossip through them, including that Snyder had thrown a Christmas party. And at that time, Xboxes were new, you know, they were yeah. just coming out. And he came to this Christmas party with 10 of them and gave them to the 10 players that he liked. So, you know, anybody who has ever put on a jock at any level, knows that the 53rd man is the as important on the team as the starting quarterback. Yeah. But, you know, he, he, he didn't get that. Um, I also heard that, um, he, he, that there were the coaches didn't show up for the party, and he called the, uh, he called the office uh, to find out where they were. Ray Rhodes picked up the phone and said, we're working, damn it, and hung it up. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, one of the things that became very clear even early on is he was a major star effer. Um, he was a jock oh, yeah. esser. Um, and the stars were going to get treated like stars. And if you weren't a star, I mean, he didn't have any time for you, which meant everybody else in the organization other than the six or seven best players. It's funny. I was talking about this on radio today. Um you know, over the years, as we've gotten to know a lot of the players, you know, glory years players, but also players that played during the Snyder era, you know, I've gotten in arguments. Like, I remember getting in arguments with even Cooley uh, early on. Uh, I've I've gotten into it with Clinton, London before, Santana. And I've always said to them, hey, guys, your experience with Dan is your experience. But understand this. You were stars on the football team. You were the small group that he actually treated well. Your your feelings about him are your feelings because of the way he treated you, but the majority got treated uh, like peons. And God forbid you were a a season ticket holder or a a business partner or, God forbid, a media partner. Um, Forget it Uh, because it just wasn't, you know, the the team treated everybody like shit and it came from him. You know, that 2000 season, I mentioned this recently, that's the last time Washington had any legitimate Super Bowl preseason expectations. I looked this up the other day. The favorites before that 2000 season – were the St. Louis Rams, they were plus 300, and Washington was the second pick to win the Super Bowl at plus 350. Washington had the highest over-under win total going into that season at 11.5. That's the last time there were any real kind of high-level expectations going into a season during during the Dan Snyder era, and um, Norv almost didn't coach the team. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny, too. Uh, I was doing a show with Mel Kuyper at the time at, uh, at the Baltimore uh, ESPN zone. And one day they brought in Brian Billick, the new coach of the Baltimore Ravens. And we were talking off the air about the Redskins. And he said, and, he, you know, the big excitement about Dion and Bruce Smith and all that. And he said, mark my words, that's going to be a cluster F. 
And, you know, the people, the people who knew, knew. And that's, you know, pretty much what happened. Now, you know, you can also say, well, gee, if they would have had a kicker, uh, maybe things would have been different. Right. Um, you remember they did have a kicker. And his name is escaping me now, but uh, he had been the kicker the year before and had done a good job. And, was, uh, uh, on the way. Eddie Murray was the one that came up short after short. I think it was, was it Bentley? No. No, no, um, no, no. This is no, 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 no. Uh, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, yeah, the kicker 99 that, that missed the kick in Tampa after his... Yeah, but it wasn't Bentley. It was, it was, I know it, it wasn't was Bentley. Would, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm blanking on the name. I'll, I'll come up with it. So anyway, his, he, 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 um, he was back for 2000. Brett Conway. And he pulled, Brett Conway. Con, Conway, right. Yeah. And he pulled the muscle... Right. like in the second or third game, yeah. and was going to be back. But Vinny just cut him. They just cut him loose. Vinny liked to cut kickers. And, and they, just, they just cut him, and that got the parade of kickers that they brought in. And there was somebody that uh, signed with Tennessee, I believe, that year, who had a good year, and uh, he was just signed by Tennessee because he's a veteran kicker. He'd been in the league. And uh, the Redskins wanted him to try out. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> All the kickers that they had, and they had they gotten that right, if you look at the way that season unfolded, you know, they might have been, instead of what, when Norv was fired, seven and six, they might have been like, uh, what, eight and what, eight and four, whatever, you know. Yeah, no, the, 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 the Eddie Murray at the end of the year against the Eagles and the Giants, the Giants game in particular, that's the game where the story um, that was told by – God, I can't remember who. The giant game at home at the end of that year, they were, uh, you know, they were like, uh, they were in the hunt, certainly for the seven division. And five. Seven and five. Seven and five going into that game. And the Giants were good, too. That was a fossil Giants team. Uh, it would have been anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they sent Eddie Murray out to kick a 47 yard field goal to win the game at the end. And Murray on the sideline told Nor- Norv, I can't kick it that far in this direction. I can't get it that. And Norv said, "Get out there and kick it anyway." Uh, yeah, I, I was told it was the, it was the holder who was the punter who said that to him. Norv, you can't kick it that far. He said, "Kick it anyway." Yeah, Tom, uh, Barnhart um, was the Barnhart. Uh, was yeah, the, was but, the punter. Yeah, but but also um, you, you remember in that game, uh, Norv had. This is another thing that made Snyder angry. Norv had started Brad Johnson. Yeah. And Brad Johnson was ineffective, yep. and he was forced to go to Jeff George. Yeah. And George did get the, the one touchdown they had that day. Yeah. So that, that was another thing that exacerbated things. Well, the truth is, Jeff George had a couple of decent games that year. Jeff George yep. went to St. Louis, the, you know, the, uh, the defending Super Bowl champions, and beat the Rams on Monday Night fit, Football. Uh, and mm-hmm. had a really good game. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to pull it up right now because I want to see exactly what he did in that game. Um, Jeff George was 24 of 34, 269 yards, three touchdowns, and a pick, and a 33 to 20 win in St. Louis over the Rams. The Rams were eight and two uh, going into that game. The Redskins were seven and three. Trent Green was the starter, so I guess Kurt Warner was hurt. Uh, clearly because they were, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's crazy that you're right. If they had had a kicker, they probably would have gone nine and seven and perhaps made, you know, the postseason. Um, but 
But they didn't, and Norv got fired, and Marty got hired, and still to this day, and I've said it for 20-something years, uh, it's the single biggest football mistake that that Dan made. We would have, by the way, we would have had a glorious decade of Marty Schottenheimer um, and plenty, plenty of ratings bonus money because they would have been a really good team uh, that whole decade. Right. Um, but 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 it was doomed. It was doomed from the start because Marty's one thing was I have to have complete control. Yeah. And Snyder said yes at the moment, but as the season wore on, he didn't like that. He didn't understand what it meant to give somebody else control of his operation. And once he started to see it play out, he didn't like it, and it was never going to work. No, it was never going to work, and. Um... You know, you've told the story uh, about, you know, Marty basically. I mean, we know he fired Vinny, but he took away Fred Drasner's parking spot. That pissed Drasner off. Drasner hated him. They were all, they were all yeah. trying to get Dan to fire him during the season. Oh yeah, no, they, 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 and and some of the fans wanted that too. And there's a there's a sound clip that used to float around. I don't know whatever happened to it, but Snyder did some kind of a, you know, some kind of a charity thing or some kind of a luncheon and he and and fans were asking him to fire marty believe it or not they were you know in five yeah. and and he said y'all didn't want me to meddle did you <laughs> i've heard that sound by a number of times and that's what that was about and and you know no, having not the advantage of what would happen over the upcoming 20 years it made sense to a lot of people at the time well get rid of them dan it's not working out you know, I, I, I think it was Tommy and I that had Marty on the show many years ago. Carl Peterson used to come on um, all the time, yep. and Carl was really close with Marty as well. And, you know, they just always talked about how Marty was – he was a man of conviction, and he he could have come back and coached the team – if he had given up the personnel and the GM hat with John Schneider and there was no way he was going to do it. And by the way, he was smart not to do it. He got paid. Um, and, uh, and he, he did what Mike really didn't have the stones to do when, when, you know, all in for week one was going on before 2013. Cause yeah. Mike should yeah, well, have said, well, Mike should have said, sorry, he's not ready. I'm not starting him. I'm starting right. Kirk now. Right. Kirk, you know, had a bust, had a hurt ankle um, in that preseason. Well, but but yeah. but here's here's the thing that, that with with Marty, Marty needed his career to be resuscitated, and the way they finished that season, it did. Yeah. So that got him the San Diego job. I don't think he would have gotten that without that season. So it worked out for him, and it kind of worked out for Snyder because what he made in San Diego offset what he owed him for the last, I think, three years of the contract. And then Marty ended up, uh, you know, rubbing AJ Smith the wrong way. And despite all the winning, um, that was that was that. All right, uh, let's take a quick break, and we will continue with Andy right after these words from a few of our sponsors. The best way to learn a language: immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This segment of the show brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC and you can secure a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. You have to use my promo code KevinDC. MyBookie.com. MyBookie.ag. They've got all of the NFL prop bets that you'd want at this point. All of the Week 1 and Week 2 lines. You can bet NFL Week 2 right now uh, if you want. Um, The season prop bets on the over-under win uh, totals. Washington at 6.5 is there a win total for the upcoming season. MyBookie.com, MyBookie.ag. Promo code KevinDC. So uh, I did this thing yesterday. Oh, I wanted to tell you what Len Shapiro told me. I don't know if you listened to, to Len on the I, show. I heard the you day. talking about it, but go ahead. Which, so which so there, were, there, were, there were two things he said. First of yeah. all, do you know why George Allen got fired at the end of the 1977 season? Yeah, you, I, I heard you tell okay, that Okay, so you already heard that, me tell. Did you know he, it before? He, I, I did not, but I, but I knew this, that, that there, was, there was real friction and – and here's, here's one of the one of the interesting nuggets that I don't know if Len had or, or you had, but uh, when when George Allen went to negotiate his contract with Carol Rosenblum to come back to Los Angeles in 1978, his agent was Ed Hookstratton. Ed Hookstratton was the agent for Carol Rosenblum. Yeah, right. So he, he was he was representing both sides, and uh, as we know, George lasted only half the preseason. 
uh, he came back. There was a mutiny, and they had to fire him before they ever played a game. Yeah. Um, so I didn't I, – I, I just remembered that that 77 season – look, George Allen was the head coach in Washington for seven seasons and went to the playoffs five times. And the mm-hmm. two seasons that he didn't go to the playoffs – uh, the team went eight and six and nine and five. And the '75 season, when they didn't go to the postseason, the Mel Gray co- uh, catch cost him, you know, another yeah. playoff berth, which is one of the worst calls in the history of the NFL. Although there were lots of them back then because we didn't have replay. Um, and then '77, they were nine and five, and they missed the playoffs on the last uh, Sunday of the season when the Giants lost to the Bears, Jack Pardee's Bears. But the other story he told, and what's interesting is Matt Paris had something in the Washington Times today. He tracked down John mm-hmm. Ken Cook and had some quotes from Cook on the, you know, on the eve here of Snyder selling the team. He said, Len did, Jack Kent Cook in his last days on earth, last days, months, was considering seriously changing the team name. I had never heard that before. I'd never heard that either. Uh, that kind of surprises me. Um, but, yeah, that uh, maybe it's a, a deathbed epiphany, something like that. I don't know. But, but to see John Kent Cook say he would have stood his ground right. and not changed the name, yeah. I thought that was interesting. And, and look, Snyder could have, could have kept the name. Uh, as, as you pointed out, that the big mistake was that he tried to short his uh, minority investors out of their dividend, right. and they turned on him, and uh, he was left with no choice because he was going to lose major sponsorships if he didn't change the name. Everybody thinks he got woke because of George Floyd, et cetera. No, that didn't happen. It was because of money, and it was because it was, Fr- it was Fred Smith. It was Fred Smith. It was Fred Smith. But yeah. but Fred Smith probably wouldn't have been. Um, it, that may not have been his move without the summer of 2020 and the environment that we were in. It was a lot easier in that environment for Fred Smith to make that move on Dan. But he made the right. move on Dan because Dan was shorting his minority investors' money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, again, it, it's just like in the Don Van Natta story. If he doesn't leak the Gruden email, yeah. he probably survives. Just right. lay low, shut up, go off on your yacht somewhere. But no. Couldn't yeah. leave well enough alone. Yeah. Um, so yesterday, uh, Tommy and I had this. So yesterday, for those of you that asked, why on the podcast didn't you have your top 10? I, a couple of you reached out that you had on radio. I, I did a top 10 list, Andy, of the biggest DC sports stories that are not game-related. Tommy and I actually sort of got into this spontaneously on the podcast, but I recorded the podcast with Tommy yesterday before the radio show because he's you know going down to this Hemingway lookalike contest. By the way, for those of you that, that listened yesterday, I told Tommy that it was basically I- irresponsible for him to be going down on a boondoggle on one of the more significant days that he should be writing. And he said, well, I've earned the right to do this. And I said, well, if I were your editor and boss, I'd say, sorry, this isn't a funeral or a wedding. You're not going down to the Hemingway lookalike contest. You're writing. So he texted me. Oh, listen to you, Ben Bradley. Oh, my God. So he he texted me. He texted me earlier today. He said, guess what? I wrote a column. He said, "You you shamed me. Uh, I wrote a column that's going to appear in Friday's uh, paper. So anyway, um, I came up with my top 10 biggest DC sports stories that weren't game related. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. Did you hear my top ten or not? I I, I heard some of it. I didn't hear the top. I, okay. I think you rated this number three. All right. right? So let me ask, let me ask you, what's your number one? What's the biggest DC sports story of all time that isn't a game result or you know that isn't game related? Uh, well, I mean, you, you kind of have to define this by did as history played out. Was it the biggest? No. Sports in story? the moment. In the in moment. The moment. Okay. Yeah. In the moment that I'm living in, because this this story has kind of trickled out, right? I mean, it wasn't like, well, the the biggest moment was when I happened to be out of town, uh, the day that uh, they announced they had a deal in principle to sell the team. But coming out of nowhere was Steve Buckhantz on, I think it was a Friday morning, uh, reporting that Joe Gibbs was retiring. Yeah. And, you know, we were just launching sports radio at that time, so that was a great fire drill for us. And we went the whole day with it, and it was, you know, it was really a great, a great thing. But just in the impact of that uh, in the moment was the biggest thing I could remember. Now, you had the enormous tragedy of Len Bias, but we didn't know for a couple of weeks that it was cocaine, right? So that, that kind of, you know, stretched it out a little bit. But the the atomic bomb nature of Gibbs retiring to me just seemed like it was the biggest story. Wow, you so um, I did my top ten, and Joe Gibbs yeah. retiring in March of '93 was not in my top ten. In fact, it wasn't even mentioned hmm. on the show uh, on the radio show. Wow. And but hold on here for a second. Somebody tweeted it to me, and I'm like, oh my god, uh, of course, of course, that has to be in the top ten. Now I. I don't know if it's number one, but you can make the case it's high up on the list because that was a stunner, and it ended the greatest era of any of our professional sports teams ever. Uh, You know, and we didn't know it was going to end. We thought it would continue, especially when Richie won the the season opener against the Cowboys on Monday Night Football the following year. Richie's line. Do you remember remember Richie's line the day he was hired? I I don't. Business as usual. Yeah, business. Business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> they, Gibbs, no. but but I don't even think that was Richie's fault necessarily. That team was no. old. Free agency, right. salary cap started. Gibbs knew what was coming. Um, but my so I had Tommy convinced me that baseball's return in two thousand five is the biggest non-game related sports story ever. Wow. Um. I, I mean, it's it's got to be up there, and you're talking about you know 33 years of, of buildup. Is it going to happen? And all the false starts that we had, whether it's going to be you know the Padres or the or the Giants or uh, the Astros. I mean, there were a lot of lot of times we thought it was going to happen. So yeah, I mean that that was an enormous thing. Um, I, I mean, again, these are huge stories. You could probably make a case for any of them. Well, Not, where would you put I, Snyder selling? Uh, well, I mean, in, in terms of the the overall meaning to the town, to to the sports scene, it's it's if it's not number one, it's probably number two or number three. I mean, it's got to be in there somewhere, right? But I, I don't. I, but again, I had you got to put it. I had Bobby Mitchell integrating the team in 1962 as number two. I don't know what it was like in the moment, but I, I don't you know, no. Snyder selling the team was three for me. And here's a question for you after you mentioned Joe Gibbs' retirement in March of 93. What was a bigger story, Gibbs' retirement in 93 or his return in 2004? The, the retirement was bigger. It was bigger. 
Um, the, the return was a surprise, uh, for sure. And actually, I heard you talking about this as if it was Dan Snyder's idea to bring him back, and he went out and did it. Uh, what I've been told is that Gibbs wanted money, and he knew he could get it the fastest by this means, and he reached out through his friend Dwight Shaw that he was interested in coming back. Now, Snyder made it happen, but Gibbs had a lot of parameters, including Snyder buying a race car for it to happen. So, you know, while he gets credit for bringing him back, it wasn't like, you know, he's sitting back with his brain trust, <laughs> Vinny, <laughs> and saying, yeah, let's go, let's go get Joe Gibbs. Right, but he gets credit for that, though. He still, had to, he still yeah. had to make it happen. Yeah, he did. He did. No yeah. question. No question. Yeah. Uh, I had, so I had the return of Gibbs four. I had Lombardi being hired as five. That, that was, yeah, I don't remember, you know, you would remember that more than I, wasn't that a big deal? That was a big deal. Um, and you know, media was different than I seem to remember Sonny Jurgensen doing a basketball game on TV when he got the news that it was happening and he almost couldn't finish the game. He was so stunned by that. Um, and then two years later, George Allen coming back. Right. Both of those pulled off by Edward Bennett Williams, who, by the way, uh, he's been identified as the owner of the team over the years. He never really was. Right. He Jack was the, Kent Cook. He was, was the managing. Was the right. He was the managing. Yeah. Uh, because the NFL actually had a rule in those days, which is interesting now with Harris coming in. The NFL had a rule that you couldn't own other teams and own an NFL franchise. And Cook, of course, owned the Lakers and the Kings. Right. So. He wasn't allowed to be the majority owner, uh, even though he was. He wasn't allowed to be, be the operating partner of the team. I had Jordan to DC six. The combination yeah. of Sean Taylor and Len Bias's deaths seven. Uh, the Redskins name change eight. Abe Poland moving into the MCI Center and completely changing our city in so many ways, nine. And then I had, before I remembered Joe Gibbs retiring in March of 93, I think Art Monk finally making it into the Hall of Fame. Out of all of the Hall of Fames, you know, Daryl and Russ that followed, that was a Uh big deal for this town. We had waited for that. We had thought it was so long overdue. I think Art's trek into the Hall of Fame was a bigger deal than Russ's or Daryl's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was controversial for a long time, and you had ridiculous statements like from Adam Schefter. Well, he never had a signature catch in his career. You know, Peter King was saying, you know, when I covered the Giants, you know, they never feared Art Monk. And finally, uh, somebody convinced Peter King to have a conversation with Gibbs, and it happened. But I I would pick a bone with you on the uh, Abe building the arena in D.C. It was a bigger deal when the Capitol Center was built. In, in 1973, because we were a one professional uh, sports town. We had we had the Redskins. That was it. And so Abe was not only building the arena, but he was bringing the bullets from Baltimore, and we were getting an expansion hockey team with the Caps. And there was no – I mean, people think about arenas now, like, oh, yeah, just build a new one, just build a new one. Well, the biggest arena we had was the Washington Coliseum. Right which is now an REI center right. and, and sat at the time maybe 5,000 people. Yeah, yeah, a U-line or, or yeah. whatever had a variety of names. But, um, yeah, to have an actual, wow, NBA-caliber arena with an in, and, and a telescreen. Oh, oh yeah, that was a big deal. You could watch replays right. in the arena. That was huge. Right. So I, I would say that was a bigger deal than the uh, MCI center. 
It wasn't a bigger deal for the city, though, ultimately. Uh, Abe, well, Abe gentrifying, yeah. uh, you know, we, we ended up having, we're now a city of neighborhoods. We weren't that prior to Chinatown right, but, being but again, revitalized. You, you, go from, you go from one professional team no, I, I understand, like but that. but it was more. You said the cap, I mean, the Capital Center being built. It was really the bullets moving to Baltimore and 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 getting an NHL team, making this town uh, go from one sports pro team to three overnight. Basically, um, the bullets right, came in seventy three, the Caps in seventy four. But yeah, yeah, um, and, and the arena. And the arena, like yeah. you would have inaugurations there, True. Big, big concerts. None of that stuff was happening here before the Capitol Center. Yeah. Fights, Ali fought there, uh, you know, Rolling Stones, you name it. Oh, I mean, no, it no, no, no. I mean, I prob- it's not an exaggeration probably to say that I went to the Capitol Center 300 times. Hmm. I, maybe 500 I, wow. I mean, there were years where I probably went to 20 Bullets games, huh. 10 to 15 anyway, and they were yeah, in the playoffs every year. Uh, you know, yeah. you saw every every big concert was at the Capitol Center. Right, um, right. And, yeah, I mean, uh, Ali fought there. Sugar Ray Leonard fought there. Every tell screen, you know, close circuit, big fight was at the Capitol Center. I think yeah. I was out there for four or five of those. Um, so you see my point here. I, I, that's yeah, why it I know, was great, but... great to have the, the MCI Center, but for us to have an actual pro arena like that was huge with two teams coming in. Yeah, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think. In 1973, how many top ten markets in the country had just one professional sports team? I, not yeah. Washington had to be the only one. Buffalo, I think at the time. Buffalo wasn't a top three... ten market, though. What I'm saying, though, it's a smaller market, and at that time they had the Buffalo Braves of the NBA. The, the Sabres Bills and the, the Bills. Sabres. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, Andy and I continued for another 20 minutes or so talking about the future and what we would both suggest to Josh Harris if we had the opportunity to suggest anything. I'm going to save that portion of my conversation with Andy until tomorrow. Uh, So that is it for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Listen to this. This was the day that Joe Gibbs was introduced by Dan Snyder as the new head coach of the Washington Redskins, the return of Gibbs back in 2004. I know my dad's smiling down on this today. I know know you're there. The head coach and team president of the Washington Redskins, Joe Gibbs. Don't anybody jump the gun here, okay? <laughs> Remember, I'm a physical education major. That's ballroom dancing and handball. That's all right. That's about it. That's all, that's all you got here. You don't have anything anymore, Dad. <laughs>